for who you are. We thank you, God, that your word reveals your character and reveals to us your work that you have performed. God, I pray today that you'd give us ears to hear your word. And Lord, I pray your spirit would help make sense of this to every individual in this room. Lord, we need your illumination. And Lord, we need your conviction. God, you tell us in your word that scripture is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I pray, oh God, today that even as we look at Hebrews 9, that Lord, you would bring about those realities. Lord, that you would use your truth to instruct us and to show us what we need to see. We thank you, God. I pray, Lord, you'd be my strength and my weakness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This morning, the title of the message is, What a Wonderful Savior. What a Wonderful Savior. And what we're going to be looking at in Hebrews 9 reminds me of something that happened years ago. I, I was 18 years old. I had just gotten through my freshman year of college at Bruton Parker College in South Georgia and Mount Vernon. And that whole spring, I was looking forward to a trip. My dad was speaking in Anchorage, Alaska, and me and my mom and myself and my childhood best friend, Doug went with my parents to Anchorage, and we got there, and uh, what, what an amazing place. And we got there, and before Dad had to speak, we had a trip planned out, and somebody had let us borrow a motorhome, and we drove from Anchorage to Denali National Park. We went to Denali National Park, and we got to Denali, and one of the things that you learn is you can only go to the edge, and in order to go back into Denali at the time, back in 1992, 91, you had to get on school buses. You get on school buses, they take you back into Denali. And I mean, every turn was phenomenal. Every turn. I mean, everywhere you went. I mean, uh, I learned real quick that they say that you got to wear like bells, some kind of noise on your belt because you don't want to make a grizzly unaware that you're coming. Because they don't really like to mess with you, but the one time they often mess with you is when you alarm them. So you want to make sure that they hear you. But you know what? If you would have jumped in at any point of that trip, you would have looked at the scenery, and it would have been wonderful. It would have been astonishing to you. But that sort of reminds me of the book of Hebrews. No matter where you jump in, it's breathtaking. But as you go through this book, chapter by chapter, line upon line, verse upon verse, you continue to see the wonders of the grace of God that are given in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray this morning as we look at this message, what a wonderful Savior. We will see the grace and the beauty of Christ like never before. He's just building one after the other. You could look at this today and say, but wait a minute, we've seen some of these things already. He's being redundant. Well, if, if our response to Hebrews 9, 23 to 28 is that the author's been redundant, we're missing with eyes to see the miracle of the grace of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, 
wonderful Savior. This morning, we're going to look at three observations about our wonderful Savior. Three observations about our wonderful Savior. The first observation we're going to look at today is we're going to see a Savior who mediates. A Savior who mediates. Let's read something here. I want to go through all these verses with you. 24, 23, down to verse 28. Let's read it together. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed to man, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As we look at verse 23 and verse 24, we begin to see this Savior who mediates. Now, one of the things that We've got to understand about this word mediate. We've seen it in chapter 8. We saw it in chapter 9. And why is this word significant? And how does it apply to what we're looking at in verses 23 and verse 24? Well, the word mediate has the idea of one who unites two parties. One who unites two parties. Christ is the one who reconciles sinful man with the holy God through his perfect work of atonement. For those who trust in Christ alone, what happens? Jesus becomes the mediator. Jesus becomes the one who reconciles. He unites two parties. Another thing that we read about this, as we saw in one of the lexicons in this definition, is that the word mediator means one who satisfies the claims of God upon man. One who satisfies the claims of God upon man. When we look at the scripture, especially when we read the law of God, the law of God reveals the character of God, the standard of God. It calls us to live in light of who he is. But the only way that we can fulfill that standard is by imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can't live up to it. We can't earn it. It has to be achieved for us. And that's what we see in the gospel of Christ. When we look at this section of scripture, I want to show you something because it's really important to really the whole way this passage is framed. 23 through 28, there's going to be three terms that are used. The same word over and over and over. It's the word appear. Did you catch that when we read the passage? He says it in verse 24. He mentions it in verse 26. He mentions it in verse 28. In fact, I want you to look at this, and th there's a slide here that I want you to see that's going to show you all three of these terms. 
In verse 24, now I'm not trying to show you anything other than the fact that these words are the same in English, but they're not the same in the Greek. When he uses the word verse 24, it's a different Greek word than the word in verse 26. It's a different Greek word than the one in verse 28. But it's fascinating because they all are synonyms. They all mean the same thing. It's, it's in verse 24 he uses this word. It means to be seen openly, to manifest, or to make known. And then he turns around in verse 26, uses a different Greek word. And it means to manifest or make visible, to make apparent, or to make known. And then in verse 28, he speaks about it in reference to the return of Christ, to be seen, to see, or behold. But what I want you to see about these terms, and this is a significant point, is that each of these terms, appear, appeared, and will appear, highlight unique aspects of the work of Jesus on our behalf. You may be thinking, what does that mean? All I'm trying to tell you is this, is when you see him use the word appear in verse 24, he's pointing out a very specific work of Christ. When you see it in verse 26, he once again, he's showing you part of the beauty of who Christ is in his work, verse 28. So what we're going to see is that we're going to see he appeared in the heavenly sanctuary at his exaltation. We're going to see that he appeared in his incarnation. And then we're going to see in verse 28 that he appeared or he will appear in his return. And every one of these, the first one that we see, his appearance into the heavenly sanctuary reminds us of what? His mediatorial work. He is our mediator. He is a wonderful savior. He's a savior who mediates. He's a savior who goes in between. He's a savior who is our advocate. When we read verse 23 and verse 24, he says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The earthly copy was the tabernacle, and the tabernacle had to have rites of purification. And then he's going to explain that even the heavenly sanctuary is purified. And we're going to look at that. What in the world does that mean? He says in verse 24, for Christ has entered not in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What does this mean? I, I was looking at the, this, this issue, and, and one of the things that I, you know, you often do when you read the Bible and you're making observations as you start writing down your questions. And so one of the things that's important to do when you read scripture is identify what are the interpretive issues. Now, this could be made sense of by a nine-year-old kid, a nine-year-old reading the book of Proverbs, may not understand a certain word in the verse. And he says, what in the world does that mean? Or he may not understand how a verse in the scripture connects to a verse before. Now, that happens at every level of our Christian life. Whether you're a teenager, whether you're a little kid, whether you're an older person, 
whether you're a scholar, and none of us are. And if there was a scholar looking at the word, he would do that. So one of the questions that comes out is, what does he mean that the heavenly sanctuary needs to be purified? We understand why the earthly sanctuary needed to be purified because it was simply a shadow of the substance that would come in Christ. So what does he mean about this heavenly idea? F.F. Bruce is a really smart man and a scholar when it comes to the book of Hebrews. And, And what's interesting is, I want to read this to you. He said, if we envisage the heavenly dwelling place of God in something like material terms, we shall find ourselves trying to explain the necessity for its cleansing in ways which are far from our author's intention. Now, hang in there with me. He goes on, but we have already had reason to emphasize that the people of God are the house of God that his dwelling place is in their midst. Now listen to this. It is they who need inward cleansing, not only that their approach to God may be free from defilement, but that they may be a fit habitation for him. Just as the tabernacle in the wilderness, together with its furniture, had to be anointed and sanctified so that God might manifest his presence there among his people and they might serve him there. Now, here it is. So the people of God themselves need to be cleansed and hallowed in order to become a dwelling place of God in the spirit. I think he's on to something there. I think what he's speaking of is in, 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 as a result of what our high priest does. He makes us a fitting dwelling. Why? Because we are desperately dirty and in need of a cleansing, and only Christ can make us clean. So we see right off the bat of this, this wondrous cleansing that only Christ can bring. Others point out, that this idea is more of the inauguration or the dedication. And they speak of just like the old covenant needed a sacrifice to initiate the Mosaic law, the new covenant is inaugurated through the sacrifice of Jesus. Maybe either one of those, but the point being that Christ is the one who brings the cleansing. Christ is the one who brings the purification. We keep looking at this. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. I want you to think about this. Maybe you've not been with us. Maybe you have, and you're a little bit lost. The law is literally parallel to what we call the old priesthood of Aaron. So when we think about the new covenant and we think about our great high priest, it's contrasted with the old system of the law. It's contrasted with the old priesthood or the priesthood of Aaron. And the law and the old priesthood was a shadow of the substance that was to come in Jesus. This old way was designed by God as this shadow to point us to a greater reality that would come in Jesus. Now think about it. This means everything you've ever learned about the Old Testament. I could go around the room and say, can y'all tell me about what you've learned in Sunday school 
about the priest, about the sacrifices. I could date myself right now and go back to the flannel board back in the day when they had all these stories. Now, isn't it interesting? If you don't understand the substance, you never understand the shadow. A lot of people, they tell you all they learned about the Old Testament, but they've never understood that the Old Testament is a shadow of what is fulfilled in Christ. And all of these sacrifices and the priesthood and the holy place and the most holy place and all of all the details, all the furniture in the tabernacle, all the layout of the tabernacle was what? It was a visual. It was a visual. Think about it. You know, when, when you get with little kids, you try to you talk to them, not abstract, but you try to talk to them with pictures. You try to talk to them with things they can look at. We're just like children. How are we going to understand these wondrous things apart from God drawing us a picture, apart from God giving us a visual that we can see with our senses? And the Holy Spirit enables us to see that all of these pictures that God has given us through the Old Testament and through the old priesthood were to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You see, the sacrificial Old Testament priesthood operated in an earthly tent known as the tabernacle. It was made by hands. It was literally inhabited by the sons of Aaron, who were the priests who served in the tabernacle and later in the temple offering sacrifices on behalf of their own sins and the sins of the people. And all of it, all of it was intended to show that we need a greater priest. We need a greater priest. These sacrifices were offered year to year, perpetual sacrifices with no end in sight. But thanks be to God, there was an end in sight. There was a day when in the fullness of times, God sent forth his son born under the law that he might redeem us born under the law. And he came and he offered a sacrifice once and for all. Done. And so all of this is pointing to the substance. It's pointing to the reality that's fulfilled in Christ. Verse 24, it says he, he entered not in the holy places made with hands. He didn't go into an earthly tabernacle. He didn't go to the one that was built according to the design that Moses gave the people. He didn't go into that outer courtyard of the physical tent. He didn't then go in through the holy place. And he didn't then walk into the holy of holies and the earthly tent. What did he do? He went into the heavenly sanctuary. You see, after Jesus died on a cross, after Jesus offered up the ultimate sacrifice for sin, he passed through the heavens after he was buried and died and rose from the dead, he passed through the heavens. He then went into the heavenly sanctuary where he experienced his exaltation 
where he went and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what does it say in verse 24 in the second part? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. The last three words are remarkable. On our behalf. On our behalf. I was thinking about this as I was reading the text this week. If we understand that phrase right there, on our behalf, it changes everything. It changes everything. You see, so much of what we struggle to fight against is a religious mindset of earning our way to God. It's a religious mindset of proving ourselves before God a religious mindset of making God happy with us by our deeds and by our works. It's a religious mindset that is often based on manipulation, based on tactics. It's often based on emotionalism. It's based on all kinds of factors. But at the end of the day, if we don't understand by the grace of God, that the message of the scripture is that Jesus came to die on our behalf. We've misunderstood God and we've misunderstood the gospel. But today we see that the author of Hebrews writing to these Jews that were tempted to go back to Judaism. Do you see what he's doing? If you didn't understand that, this would still be rich because it's the truth of who Jesus is. But when you add to it the reality that these weren't people that were Gentiles who had learned about the Old Testament like we have through the Bible, these were Jewish people who lived the culture. These were Jewish people who smelled the fragrances. These were Jewish people that longed to be a part of all the bells and the whistles of all of the shadows of the Old Testament. And now they're tempted, rather than move forward with Christ, they're tempted to go back. And what is he doing? He's saying, what are you doing? Why would you go back somewhere that was intended to be the shadow? Why would you go back to the shadow that cannot save? Why would you neglect the substance? Why would you go backwards? Why would you not look towards Jesus? He is our mediator who stands on our behalf. And what have we been learning in Hebrews? He's our divine representative. We had to have one who was not just fully God. He had to be fully human. He couldn't just be a human representative. He had to be a divine human representative. Apart from Jesus being fully God and fully man, we have no hope for salvation. But what is he showing us here? He's showing us that we have a divine representative. He is our advocate, our mediator, our intercessor. We were looking on Sunday night about the perseverance of the saints recently, two weeks ago. And one thing that we began to realize was this, the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas did what he did, and he did it quickly after he betrayed the Lord. But we saw Peter, and Peter, the Lord came and comforted him and shared with him the reality that Satan was literally sifting him like wheat. But then Jesus looks at Peter and says, but I have prayed for you. 
And what does it point to? It points to the reality that the one who goes to the Father, the one who enters into the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf is now the one who intercedes for us. What hope do you have this morning, Christian, of making it through all the way to the end because you don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow, next week, next year. You don't know what crises you're going to go through. You don't know all the challenges you're going to have as your body gets older. You don't know all the things your kids are going to deal with. You don't know all the challenges that the world's going to face. What is your hope? You have a great high priest who stands on your behalf, and he is an intercessor. He is the great mediator. He is your advocate. Praise be to God. You may be here today and you're thinking, you don't understand the habits or the struggles that I deal with in my life. Don't we all deal with a sin that so easily besets us, as we'll see later? And yet, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Hebrews is showing us that we have a faithful high priest over the house. We have a high priest who now lives within us, one that is sinless but sympathetic, one that prays for us. What hope do I have to face the battles of the flesh? We have a great high priest. He intercedes for us. He prays for us in our weakness. He enables us with his strength. He enables what he commands. Praise be to God. This is the hope of the gospel. This flies in the face of religion. Religion says, try harder, work harder, be a better person, and come into your blessing. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is there was one who did this work for us. And he's the great high priest. Amen. Good news. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the tabernacle. He's the only one that can bring you forgiveness. Only one who can provide you access you have no ability to get in the presence of God, no ability to commune with him, no way to experience forgiveness apart from him, but he is our great high priest. He is the great mediator. He is our great representative. And through his work, he accomplishes it all. I wondered this morning, I was thinking about this, like how do you put this down to the bottom shelf where you, know, you can grab the cookies right there, right off the bottom? How can you think about this? I want you to think about it. How does your thinking affect the way you live the Christian life? I wonder if even though we might say the right things on paper, if I said, hey, we could, I could put a creed in and we could read it liturgically and we could do a congregational reading and we would all read it and we would all say amen. But let me ask you something. Are you ever tempted to think goofy even though you say the right things on paper? Are you, ever, are you ever tempted to get sideways in your thinking and practical living? How many of us have stated the gospel? You, you don't understand the challenge sometimes preachers go through because I can get up in a pulpit and I can say things that you say amen to and I can walk out of here and in the car start thinking incorrect about the very things contrasting what I just preached. You see, what would happen if by the grace of God, this understanding this revelation consumed our hearts and our minds and guided our thinking daily before God. How would it change the way we live the Christian life? 
How would it change the way we fight legalism? How would it change the way we view self-righteousness? How would it change the way we deal with ourselves when we face our own weakness in sin? This is paramount. You see, so many times we get out of this reality. I pray that we would see that this is not just truth to be observed, but truth to be submitted to. One of the prayers this morning is to say, God, would you help me not just to understand informationally that you're a mediator that stands on my behalf, but would you help me to see the implications for how I live, the implications of how I act, the implications of how I deal with people in Scottsboro, Alabama in 2021. But not only do we see a Savior who mediates, we see a Savior who substitutes. A Savior who substitutes. Now notice, we, we see another usage of the word appearing. And that word appearing is going to be in verse 26. And notice here he's speaking of the incarnation. Look at the second half of verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. So what do we see? The emphasis seems to be here in the first usage of the word appearance. He's appearing into the heavenly sanctuary. He's acting in his exaltation as our mediator, as our divine representative. But now the author of Hebrews seems to emphasize his appearance when he came to this earth. His appearance and what are the implications? So we see not only a savior who mediates, but second of all, a wonderful Savior who substitutes himself for us. We, it's fascinating because this one actually is necessary before the first one. He didn't do this chronologically or linear. He did this in a way of fulfilling the purpose that the Holy Spirit was giving him. He's showing them, look, he stands on our behalf in this heavenly sanctuary. Wow. And what does Ephesians say? We're seated with him in the heavenlies. Wow. I mean, on and on, it just gets better and better. It's like Denali on steroids, isn't it? It's like, you think that's good. Just keep looking at how this goes. Verse 25, verse 26. For then, he says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. He goes every year and he doesn't bring blood that's his own. He brings blood of an animal. But what does Christ do? He comes not with blood of, his, of an animal, but he brings his own blood and he doesn't have to offer perpetual sacrifices year to year. And notice his argument in verse 25. You see, if this had to be offered repeatedly, then it would have necessitated that Christ offer up himself repeatedly since the creation, which makes no sense. Because his whole point is this. He's like, look, notice the contrast. You're tempted to go back to Judaism, but remember, if you go back to Judaism, it's, it's not the same. It, it, you're going back to the shadow that's pointing to the substance. And, and Jesus offers a complete, sufficient, all sacrifice. He doesn't need to do it year to year to year to year. This is amazing because he's saying, look, he's saying, this is sufficient. This sacrifice is enough. 
And what happens and, and when did this take place? He says he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But in God's wisdom, it wasn't perpetual sacrifices since the foundation of the world. What was God's wisdom? God's wisdom was, as Galatians chapter four says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's an amazing term in Galatians because it means that we were looking at this on Sunday night. Justification is a declaration in the courtroom. Adoption is an invitation to the living room. We've been declared right in the courtroom of God. And now because he's our great high priest, he invites us to walk into the living room and sit down. Why? Because we're part of the family. We're part of the family, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did and the sacrifice he performed for us was once and for all. He uses this in chapter seven, verse 27 of Hebrews. He uses it in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12. He uses it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Once for all, the sacrifice of Christ was once for all. There's no need to re-sacrifice Christ. It, it, Jesus is enough. His sacrifice is sufficient. I, I pray you see what he's doing here. He's showing them. He's saying, look, all of this, all of this happened when, he says, at the end of the ages. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. This is fascinating. It's like the age of the law, the age of that old priesthood, that old priesthood of Aaron, the culmination that when Christ came, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, and it was the culmination. It was like now this new age had come. And what happened? It was the age of God's grace in Christ. The age of Messiah coming to this world. Once and for all. Remember in Hebrews 1 verse 2, but in these last days, the last days start when? Really with the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, resurrection, exaltation. And so in the scripture, the last days, some people say, are we living in the last days? Well, I do believe, I think, this is not something that you could take to the bank, but I believe that we're in the last of the last days. I believe we're in the last of the last days, but you got to remember something. When Paul wrote in the New Testament, he wrote in the last days. Why? Because the last days were inaugurated through the work of Christ. And as he was exalted, it set in motion the last days. So I believe we're in the last of the last days, but what's happening here? He's speaking about this reality. Christ appeared in the heavenly sanctuary, but then he says, look, he stands on our behalf, and it's as if he says, lest you need to be reminded, how can he do this? Because he came to this earth once and for all to put away sin, to put it away. Why? Because his sacrifice was sufficient. His sacrifice was enough. So what do we see? We see this substitutionary sacrifice by the great high priest, the one who not only mediates for us, but substitutes himself for us. How can our sin be put away? Because he put it upon himself. He offers not up the blood of animals. He offers up his own blood. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake he made him 
to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He substituted his life for ours. So what do we see so far? We see a wonderful Savior, a Savior who mediates. He's our representative. We see a Savior who substitutes. But then thirdly, we see a Savior who returns. Now notice this. We've seen this word appear in verse 24 and in verse 26, and now in verse 28, look what he uses it. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now this gets exciting. Look what he does in verse 27. So we see these three appearings. So the first one, his appearance in his exaltation in the heavenly sanctuary, his appearance in the incarnation, now his appearance at his return. And we see this wonderful Savior who returns. And 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Do you realize that we die not by chance or not just by natural causes, but we are appointed to die? I tell you, we got to be careful because while we can all understand, while we should be concerned as image bearers of God, of health and responsibility in the world we live in today, we got to be careful, y'all. Have you, have you not noticed that maybe over the last year, we've sort of bought into the lie of an illusion of control over our lives? Have you seen that? it's almost like I was reading John Flavel. He said, listen to this. He says, how is it that you have survived so many mortal dangers, sicknesses, accidents, designs of enemies to ruin you? It is, I presume, beyond question with you that the very finger of God has been in these things and that it is by his care alone you have been preserved not because of your smart health decisions, not because of anything that you've done. Never for a moment shall we presume that we are the ones who preserve our lives. Doesn't give us an excuse to be irresponsible. Doesn't mean that we act foolishly. But if we go too far to the other side, we've lost sight of a God who preserves our life. He says it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. It's convicting, isn't it? Because it's easy to, it takes one to know one. How many times in my own life have I been worried more about the temporal than the eternal? Can you relate with me? And again, that's why I say it's easy for me to spot because it's a struggle that I deal with. But I'll tell you, uh, one question that we need to ask ourselves, are, are we as concerned with the spiritual condition of people as we are their physical condition. You know, are are we as concerned? What did Jesus say that's really sobering? And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a great warning that Jesus gives in Matthew 10, 28. And so what does 
the author of Hebrews doing? He's saying, look, it's appointed for a man to die once, and after this, the judgment. And we start to see that the author of Hebrews is saying, look, you're either going to face him as a divine judge, or you're going to face him as your faithful high priest. I pray today that there's not a person in here that faces him as your divine judge. But by grace through faith, you see the miracle and the mercies of Christ. I love this. You know, it's, it's uh, people say, but wait a minute, how, how could I earn this? You can't. How can I help accomplish this? You can't. How can I do something that I can bring to the table? You can't. What's the point of his priesthood? His priesthood is on our behalf. His priesthood is substitutionary in nature. His priesthood is a free gift of his grace that can only be received by grace through faith in him alone. And so this morning, I pray that you would see that the warning that he gives, but he's showing us something. Here's what's amazing. It's appointed for a man to die once, and then what he's going to do is turn around and show us something. He's going to show us that Christ also died. (laughs) Wow. You mean to tell me that we are going to die, but what did God do in Jesus Christ? He died that we might live. He died that we might have life. This morning, There's so many things I think about about the future. You know, as you get older, you start going, what's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my wife? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to that? And we speculate all these things. But I'll tell you, one given is that we see here in the scripture that we will face our creator. But what do we learn in Romans? Don't be fretful, believer in Christ. Don't be overwhelmed. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a sweet declaration of the hope believers have in their Lord, in Jesus Christ. But what he shows us here is something that we need to take warning of. We have to be prepared. We have to be concerned. We have to evaluate. We have to look. Are you prepared to meet God? Are you prepared to meet your maker? Are you prepared to face the creator? And again, what's the answer? What's the hope? It's Hebrews. We have a great high priest who's sinless and sympathetic, who offers up himself that we might live. I love the lyrics to Rock of Ages. I love these. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. This morning, is there anything in your hand that you're clinging to as you come to the Savior? If there's anything in your hand that you're clinging to, dear friend, it demonstrates that you've not yet understood the message of Hebrews. There's nothing in the hand you can bring. There's nothing in my hand I can bring. It's only to Jesus Christ that we can cling. 
It's only to Christ that we can find salvation and forgiveness of sins. And look what he does. He keeps going. He shows them he's either going to be your divine judge or he's going to be a divine comfort. But in the high priesthood of Christ, we have hope, forgiveness of sins. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is going to return. Christ is going to come for his people. I tell you, I remember years ago, uh, I heard a teacher explaining the four pillars of the Bible, and he said, there's creation, there's the fall, there's redemption. And he says, but often we stop right there. He says, we never can forget the fourth pillar, because if we forget the fourth pillar, we've lost sight of the whole message of the Bible. It's not just creation, fall, redemption. There's restoration. There's restoration. God is going to restore. We started out in a garden. We're going to end in a garden. Why? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Christ Jesus is coming for his church. Christ Jesus is coming for his own. And notice what he does here. He wants them to see something. And I pray this encourages you. Are, are you bleak? Are you overwhelmed? Are you in despair? I think we all understand what that's like. It's easy to happen, isn't it? It's easy to buy into the lies of deception and get overwhelmed and just so just burdened by everything. But Christian, understand the hope of this verse. The great high priest is not done in his work. In verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he's coming back, but he's not coming to deal with sin. That was once and for all. But what is he coming to do? He'll appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's humbling. The question I would ask you this morning is, would your life look any different over the last month if Christ were not returning? Does the return of Jesus Christ, does the second coming of Christ compel you by his grace to live holy and righteous because of his grace? Or have you lost sight of that fourth pillar and you're simply just living, looking backwards? You're encouraged by the fact that Jesus came and died, but you've lost sight of the fact that Jesus as a king is coming to reign. He's coming to reign. He's coming to rule. And we have hope. Philippians chapter three says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's gonna return. And, and the Bible speaks about a hope that God puts within his people in 1 John chapter three. And everyone who, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you remember Titus? Titus speaks of two appearances. He says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, bringing salvation. But then what does he say? He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory. He says, look, God has appeared. He will appear. Live your life looking backwards at his first appearing and forwards to his second appearing. And the author of Hebrews does something very similar. Instead of using two appearings, though, he gives three appearings. He says, Christ has appeared into the heavenly sanctuary. He has appeared on this earth in the incarnation, and he will appear again in the future. So this morning, as we close out Hebrews chapter 9, I pray we would see the hope and the grace that's in Jesus. He gives us a snapshot of what God has done for us in Christ. And it really is the three tenses of salvation. We have been saved. How have we been saved? He substituted his life for us. He came and dealt with the penalty of sin. But what's going on now? We are being saved. And how does his appearance affect that? He stands as our mediator, as our great intercessor, praying for us even as we walk this Christian life. But what do we see? We shall be saved in the future. Why? Because Christ will return and no longer will we deal with the presence of sin in our bodies. Our bodies will experience a glorification. Amen? So this morning, as we close... Man, he stands on your behalf. He comes to do away with sin once for all. He is a king who comes to reign. That's a lot, I know. There's so many things, you know. It's like, uh, wow, let me get in a room by myself and just chew and meditate on these things for about seven hours, all right? But I pray that uh, that's what we do. I pray that we chew on these truths of the grace of God because they are meant as Christians to stir us. They are meant to comfort us. They are meant to reprove us. They are meant to challenge us. They are meant to be blessings to us. But this morning, is he going to be your divine judge or will you face him as your great high priest? The good news of the gospel is, is there's an invitation for everyone in this room to come and to receive him as your great high priest so that in that day, he will not act as your divine judge. He will act as a divine comfort because of the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus that will cover you in that day. That's our hope, friends. That's our hope. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, this is marvelous. I feel like we've barely grazed the surface. Lord, I pray that these words would shape our lives. God, I pray that your coming would change the way we look at today, would change the way we look at tomorrow, would change the way we look at world current events, would change the world, way we look at every dimension within this realm. I pray, God, that it would shape us, it would purify us, it would compel us to offer up our bodies a living sacrifice. And oh God, how wonderful that your grace enables us to do that very thing. I pray, oh Lord, that these truths would be precious to our hearts. God, I pray you'd use them in a way that grows our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.